Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in 2 Timothy 1. So we're starting a brand new book. It's a short book. I think it's only four chapters long. Uh, and 2 Timothy is significant. Not only is it similar in style and message to 1 Timothy, because Paul's writing to the same person, for some of the same reasons, um, mostly that he is wanting to give advice to a young minister and how to be faithful in ministry and what his, his primary responsibilities are. But it's also significant because this is the last known letter of the Apostle Paul. We'll see it in the final chapter where it's very clear this is his last letter. We actually have two letters like this in the New Testament. Uh, 2 Timothy being one, the other is 2 Peter, um, which, which is the, the last letter we have of Peter. He, he references his, his upcoming death. Uh, most take it as a reference to his upcoming death. Uh, so Paul is in Rome when he writes this, and uh, the persecution of Nero is is uh, about to take place or is taking place. Uh, the story goes that uh, part of Rome had uh, been destroyed by fire, and the rumor went out that uh, Nero caused it. Uh, he he had to get rid of this section of of, of the fire of the city in order to to reconstruct and, and you know build his his own little public buildings. But but while Rome was burning, he was playing a fiddle or something, um, and so he took a lot of heat. And he does what all tyrants and all politicians do: he blame shifts. It's not my fault; it's their fault. Uh, and he blamed the Christians, and so uh, engaged in a very severe persecution of Christians that was quite bloody and horrendous. Maybe we'll talk more about it. Uh, in a few days. Uh, but I want to emphasize just, just uh, a few sections here of chapter 1. Uh, we, we're really just doing um, uh, some some of the things that we saw in First Timothy. That is, uh, that Timothy must fulfill his calling as a minister. Uh, and that is to, to proclaim the pure gospel and to guard against those who would uh, redefine it or reconstruct it. So notice verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you to laying on of hands. For God gave us the spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. There's a lot going on here in uh, these uh, about four or five verses um, that, that would probably go beyond what, what we want to do uh, here uh, today. But uh, one thing I want to highlight here is the role of family when it comes to faith. Uh, Paul begins by saying... I've received from my ancestors uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to quote um, the epistle of Jude, which we'll get to eventually. Jude's probably my favorite book in the New Testament. Um, and uh, you too have received an inheritance of faith. And he names his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Now, I, I think that's significant because uh, Paul is writing to encourage Timothy here. So he says, I remember your tears. Those were either tears of sadness that Paul and Timothy are being parted or tears of, of just a burden of ministry. Um, I, I go back and forth on that. Uh, for, for Paul is, is emphasizing you've been called into this and, and don't neglect your calling that, that came through laying on of hands. But one big emphasis is that Timothy has been given uh, a firm foundation and an example of what a godly life uh, should look like in through his grandmother and mother. 
Now, it is striking that uh, father or grandfather isn't mentioned here, and we don't really know why. Maybe they weren't believers. Um, maybe, uh, maybe his father is out of the picture. Maybe he died, something like that. We, we just don't know. But it's significant, the, the influence that his family and upbringing has on Timothy, which is a reminder that, that moms and dads, and even beyond that with extended family, remember that at this time extended family was part of the family. So in the home, you would have mom, dad, and the kids, and probably grandparents and, and whatnot. Um, but the influence that family have, parents have. Look, I, I always try to emphasize this, that the primary pastor of your children is not the guy who stands behind the pulpit, but the guy at the head of the, 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 the dinner table. Um, mom and dad have an incredible responsibility to spiritually guide and direct their children. So you, mom and dad, have got to get your act straight. And, and because you play an incredible role uh, in, in raising your children in the faith. I've said on these devotions before that if we were to go back, let's say, a hundred years, and with each uh, subsequent uh, generation, if we just retained those who grew up in the church, where would Christianity be right now? Look, a movement grows in, in two ways. One is evangelism, so fulfilling the Great Commission. The other is uh, reproduction and raising children, and those children raise children in the faith, and so on and so forth. And we've really failed at both of those in Christianity. We've, we, we've presumed that the culture is borderline Christianized, and so eventually uh, people will just come in. Uh, but we've done a poor job at discipleship and evangelism. And so our children aren't well discipled because we think that's the church's job. No, mom and dad, that's your job. You must disciple your children. The church plays a role in that. But the primary role is with mom and dad. It's very clear from Scripture. But you see here that Paul is wanting to encourage uh, young Timothy as he... Uh, goes about his his ministry, but then in verses eight eight through fourteen, I don't want to spend a lot of time. I actually just want to highlight one one section of it because in verse nine to eleven we have a really good summary of the gospel. And I always like pointing these out um, and how the Bible itself articulates the gospel we believe. So verse nine, uh, Christ who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Notice here that you can't separate salvation from sanctification. Now they are separate, but they're inseparable. Like husband and wife, separate, the two shall become one flesh. They're inseparable. So too, justification, that is uh, how we are saved, and sanctification, this is the process of becoming more like Christ, they are separate. One um, is not saved through sanctification. Right? At the same time, those whom God saves, he sanctifies. He makes them holy. And we see that here. Christ saved us and then called us to a holy calling. Not because of works, so, so we're not saved because we're good people or because we've earned it. No, uh, but, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus for the ages began. began. So here we have salvation by grace alone by faith alone. These are the classic um, uh, Reformed doctrines, the, the five solas. And so we come to Christ by faith saying, my only hope is Jesus. And by the grace of God, we are then redeemed. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. So here you have the, the bodily flesh of Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we see that Christ not only saves us from our sins, he defeats and conquers death and grants eternal life to us. Um, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So uh, Paul's saying, look, I was called to this message. You, as a minister in Ephesus, are called to the to proclaim the same message and never to deviate from it. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. This is the purpose and the point of the church, of your ministry, and is of your calling. It's very important that we, we grasp this. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it on devotions, but there are a few things that make me more angry than to go to a wedding or a funeral. Uh, where a minister is given a captivated audience who are hurting or rejoicing, where emotions are high and they fail to proclaim the gospel. Well, here's, so if you never want me to do a funeral or wedding, that's, that, that's fine. But here's my basic philosophy is, is, is that what matters most at this wedding is, is, is not the scenery. It's to grasp the beauty of the gospel in bringing two people together. What is most important at funeral is not sharing stories. It is the comfort that is granted by the means of the gospel. And so I've done funerals where I practically don't even uh, acknowledge the person we are here to mourn. It doesn't mean we don't talk about mourning or lamentation, but we do so in a gospel context. Sometimes it's necessary if you don't know the person who is being laid to rest. Right? But what you get with a lot of preachers is they fabricate stories. Well, you know, I don't know who this person is, but their uncle told me a funny story. And it just comes off so bad because you were not called to tell funny stories. If you got funny stories to tell, tell them. I've I've done that with plenty of funerals and, and, and weddings. You are called to proclaim the gospel. And and it is my firm belief that if if a minister does not clearly articulate the gospel in, in, in the context by which they are given, they shouldn't be in ministry to begin with. You bring great shame upon the cross and your calling if you do not do so. Well, it goes on to verse 15. It says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Vigilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the services he rendered at Ephesus. I want to read this because though it's, it reflects the personal nature of, of a letter, um, it gives us insight into the psyche and experience of Paul and Timothy, but also of a minister particularly, but really just life in general. Notice here Paul says, look, here, here are three people I've grown to love. He's loved them in the context of church. He says the two of them have betrayed me, have wounded me deeply. But one has been an instrument of grace by God to minister and encourage me when I needed it. I want to notice, note a couple things here. One, this is life in general. Look, the church you're at is not perfect, and there will be people there who will wound you. But that's true of every organization, every group you're part of. Because broken people break things, including the human heart. At the same time, there are those within the church who will be instruments of mercy who will go out of their way 
to, to, to be the voice of God and the, and the gift of God to you. Let me just say this is also true of ministers. Yes, there may be ministers who will hurt you and whatnot, but let me tell you just, just from personal experience and, and, uh, and something I think young ministers don't, don't quite understand. They have to learn through experience. There are people who will wound you deeply, who, who, who claim to love Jesus deeply, and yet will at times come off as your enemy. The Apostle Paul experienced that. And he's open about how wounded he is, particularly in 2 Timothy. We're not just limited there. Remember what we read in First and 2 Corinthians. But Paul is also open and honest about how God has used people within the church to minister to him. So notice here, what you have is Paul confessing as a minister of the gospel to a minister of the gospel that that the emotional range of ministry is is great. There are great highs and there are deep, deep lows of ministry. And Paul says, you are going to experience both of these. Take those highs as God's mercy to you. But you need to know that there will be times of, of doubt and depression and hurt and I've, I've, I've said to many people that ministerial depression uh, and, 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 and melancholy is unique um, uh, th- throughout the world. A good friend of mine uh, had a business, was doing great, and, and felt called into ministry, and, and is in ministry now. And he, he made a comment to me, sort of about his sort of emotional drain and stuff. I said, that is what you call ministerial depression. And it's predictable. I could have told you six months ago, you're going to have this. Those early months, man, everyone loves you and everything's great. Everything's moving along. Then all of a sudden, reality hits. And the burden of your soul for the people you love becomes great. And I, I just love how honest Paul is about this. Look, here's reality. Your pastor probably won't talk about this. I've, I've just sort of decided through my own experience and through mentoring other ministers, I think this is something we should talk about more. But Paul is open about it. And I think ministers should be more open about it. Because here's the reality. It isn't just pastors and other ministers who are suffering from this. This is a human experience. And we will do well to be open and honest about it so that together we can find healing. And I believe that healing happens in the context of a local church where Christ and his gospel is at the center. So, Lord willing, we'll see you guys here tomorrow.